Do you like long goodbyes or short ones? Are you a long goodbye kind of person or just make it quick? Pause to discuss. All right, partying is such sweet sorrow. And, and so I like to say uh, hello for later, right? This isn't goodbye. This is hello for later. But think about how many ways you can say goodbye. Um, arrivederci, uh, au revoir, auf Wiedersehen, um, sayonara, right? Uh, oh, do, do you know the Russian, right? Dos vidonia. Spanish, uh, well, I know a lot more of these. Adios, right? Or nos vemos, like we'll, we'll see each other. Nos vemos pronto, we'll see each other right away. Chao, that one's a good one. Or hasta, hasta means until, hasta la pasta. Well, no, they don't say that one. Hasta means until, like hasta luego, uh, hasta pronto, hasta mañana, right? Or, or this one, hasta la vista, baby, right? <laughs> or, or you know this one, vaya con Dios, like go with God. Another one, hasta siempre, it means, uh, it's not just like a long goodbye, but a goodbye for a really long time. Like this, this may be the last time we see each other. Oh, do you know this one? Uh, do you use Godspeed? Do you ever use that one? I don't even know what it meant. I had to look it up. God and, and speed. Speed would mean uh, in Old English to advance or prosper or succeed you. Godspeed you, you know, speed you along on the road. Did you know this one? That the English goodbye is a contraction. God be with ye. It's a, it's a salutation and a benediction. The letters G-O-D-B-W-Y-E in the 1570s became goodbye. God be with ye. Goodbye. So, so it's like saying God was surely with us just now. Think about that. God was surely with us in our interaction. And may God be with you as we part. I, I really, really like that. What a great way to interact. I, I get so excited about meeting with Jesus when I meet with you. That's the point, right? We connect in the fellowship of God. I'm on the lookout for God when I meet up with you. Is that what you look for when you gather with Christians? Do you ask questions like, wow, did our interaction together just point you to Jesus? Oh, I hope so. Was our encounter a reminder of God's goodness? Oh, it's super important to think about because that's who we are as the body of Christ. May our encounter leave you with a taste of God's goodness and his presence. And, and then may God's presence attend you and surely goodness and mercy shall follow you. God be with ye. All right, so next time you say goodbye, goodbye with a wink, I'll know what it means. Goodbye. God be with you. Here's an example of one encounter uh, where I, I feel God was, was clearly there. I met with Pastor Mike from Lake Sawyer Church on Wednesday, enjoyed some good food. Uh, and as Lindsay, our server, delivered our food, I thanked her and said, um, hey, we're Jesus people. And we pray to thank God for the food. Is there anything we can be praying for you for? And she's like, honestly? Uh, wow, um, everything. I said, okay, we'll pray for that. <laughs> and we did, right? And then, and then on the receipt, just a simple, hey, Lindsay, we're praying that Jesus will show up in your life. And you know what? Jesus did show up in her life last week because we were there. Right? We showed up. He showed up because we showed up. That's a great tool, by the way, if you want to get into spiritual conversations and, and get Jesus' name out there. 
There's some fun follow-up to that as well. But the question is, in our encounters with one another, in our goodbyes, was our encounter a reminder of God's goodness? I hope that's why we met. And remember our new definition of love comes from Scott McKnight. It, it has affection, presence, and advocacy, and direction, along with durability. Remember, it's love is a rugged commitment a rugged, affective commitment to be with and for another person unto Christ-likeness. So affection, the rugged commitment, the durability, to be with a person, that's, that's presence. To be for another person, that's advocacy and direction unto Christ-likeness. So even though Paul is leaving these elders in Ephesus in our passage today, and he will not see them again. His presence and advocacy and purpose, his direction has been clear. And I wonder what kind of clarity we have when, when we say goodbye to someone. So hold that in your mind as we think about what's next. Paul is laying an example for the elders that have been appointed by the Holy Spirit to serve the church. And think about this, since elders are setting the example for the church, what's the example was well, to, to carry this out as well, this rugged, effective commitment for the church. And, and this is something that as at Issaquah Christian Church, you know, we've taken the New Testament admonitions to the elders and we've dialed in the role as, as an acronym, PESTLE. Prayer, example, shepherd, teach, lead, equip. So let me just tell you what I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to tell you, and then near the end I'm going to tell you what I told you. But this is the deal. Paul has just announced he's no longer going to see them again, that trials and afflictions await him in every city. And here it is, the long, difficult goodbye. He doesn't expect positive reception in the cities in which he preaches the kingdom. And, and in view of how precious the church is, Paul urges the elders to do five things. This is what we'll talk about to maintain their personal spiritual life. Number two, to pastor, to shepherd the Christians of Ephesus who have been redeemed by Christ's blood. Number three, to watch out for those intent on destroying God's mission. And number four, to guard against supposed believers who will distort the truth and draw away disciples after them. And number five, to remember his own example. So let's get into the passage and then we'll work through those items. Acts 20 28 through 38. Paul's continuing on in this admonition. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities 
and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he'd said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. That's a very cool passage. Uh, just amazed at Paul's heart and, and his love and the example that's set. But let's just go through that list of things again. Uh, the first was to maintain their personal spiritual life. How important is that? You, elder, set the example so that all the sheep would look to their own personal spiritual life as super important. Right, you need to take the, your own oxygen mask first and then help others. Right, that's in the airline, in the airline warnings. Another way I've heard it is that your personal input needs to be greater than your public output. Your personal input needs to be greater than your public output. Your time in the presence of God developing that intimacy with God, which is the goal of your salvation, maintaining your spiritual life before you go try to put that out there. The truth is, sometimes the way we do the work of God destroys the work of God in us. And we've got to maintain our own spiritual life, our connection with the Father, so that we can have something to offer. Paul would say, I've got to work on my own spiritual life, lest after preaching to others, I myself will be disqualified. We need that message today. I need that message today more than ever before. Sometimes the way we do the work of God destroys the work of God in us. And so our private personal input has got to be greater than our public output. Number two, the elders are called to shepherd or pastor the Christians of Ephesus who have been redeemed by Christ's blood. They are overseers, watch guards. Because whose sheep are these? <laughs> are they Paul's? Are they Apollos's? Are they Peter's? No, this isn't about any person that they're following other than Jesus. They are Jesus's sheep. So the elders need to treat them as such and maintain that accountability. There isn't room for personal followings, personal brands. They're redeemed by God's own blood. Oh, wow. We need to explore that image. God's own blood. Let's think about the sacrificial system. It's easy to get the idea in the Old Testament that God somehow wants or needs the animals and that you need to give them up and that's a, that's a loss to yourself. That's often what we think of, right, as sacrifice. We think something that costs you. But the reality of sacrifice in the Old Testament is that God has actually given the creature to his people because the life of the creature is in the blood. Let, let me read it to you from Leviticus 17, 11. The life of of a creature is in the blood, says Yahweh, and I've given it to you to make atonement for your sins. To decontaminate yourself, to purify yourself. God actually gives his people, the animals, as the pathway to be cleansed from their sin for the time being. 
It's a temporary thing. These pure, unblemished animals go into the presence of God through their blood, because the life of the creature is in the blood. And so the blood goes forward, marched in to the presence of God, where they as humans and those animals cannot go without the blood. So it's not really about killing, it's about releasing the blood, right? <laughs> to send that blood in. The blood was then sprinkled, placed in the very presence of God in the temple. Most of us don't really like to even discuss this, but it's important for our understanding of what Jesus has done. Because the, the humans, the, the people of God, wouldn't enter his presence bodily in the sacrificial system. Only the guiltless blood can enter into the presence on our behalf. And now Paul is describing the purchase of God's people with God's own blood. And we haven't talked much about substitution, his, his body for our body, his blood for our life in the book of Acts, because Luke only mentions it here. But here it is in all of its scandalous force. Tom Wright says that the blood of the animals was saying, in relation to every possible aspect of the Israelites' regular relationship with God, all this happens because I love you enough to give my own self, my own life for you. The animals are not just, it seems, representing the people who come to worship. They stand as a gift from God to his people with their death symbolized by the poured out lifeblood, with their death as a sign of God's own self-sacrificial love. Allow me to read to you from the sermon in the New Testament that we call Hebrews. And you might want to take your shoes off for this one because we are standing on holy ground here. Hebrews 9, 19 through 28. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is a covenant, right? The, the covenant that is being cut with blood. There's blood, they dry out the covenant, and on the book he places blood, both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified or decontaminated with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Okay, what are the copies of the heavenly things? Well, the temple, the tabernacle space, later the temple, was a copy, a pattern of what was the heavenly space, the spiritual realm. It was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified, decontaminated with these rites, rituals. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. What? So there's a temple in God's heavenly space where his divine counsel meets and where prophets look in and see what's going on. It says, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Well, Jesus has gone into 
God's dwelling place, the very temple of God itself, the spiritual temple. And it, he's, he's appearing before God on our behalf. That's pretty amazing. Let's read on. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with a blood not his own, but animal's blood. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Now, Jesus did this. As it is, Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So whose blood does Jesus bring to the very altar of God in the presence on our behalf? Yeah, his own. God's own blood. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. <laughs> so Jesus did say, goodbye, God be with you, uh, a hello for later. But it was, a, it was a God be with you in his presence anticipates his return. He sends his spirit to be among us, even as we anticipate, eagerly await a savior that's pretty awesome. The third thing Paul teaches his elders is to watch out for those intent on destroying God's mission. Because the enemy prowls. Satan is lurking and is intent on the impotence of the church. That's what he wants. The destruction. So he's intent on our impotence and has designs for our destruction. Tom Wright informs us that Paul no doubt has Demetrius and his friends in mind, still sore about their loss of business, and the, the priestesses of Artemis, who may likewise have suffered a decline in attendance at their great temple. There may also be some magicians who didn't burn their books and are eager for revenge to show that their power is, after all, superior to that of Jesus. There are a lot of cultural pressures in Ephesus, and maybe you've noticed them as well here and now. So are we aware of the schemes of the devil? These elders would need Paul's encouragement later in, in a letter to the church, and they would be challenged to put on the full armor of God to stand in the time of testing. Let me read that to you, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, 
Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So Paul's been telling them, number one, to maintain their personal spiritual life. Number two, to pastor the Christians of Ephesus who have been redeemed by Christ's blood. Number three, to watch out for those intent on destroying God's mission. And number four, to guard against supposed believers who will distort the truth and draw away disciples after them. Many movements, Christian movements as well, follow certain figures as their disciples instead of Jesus' disciples, redeemed by God's own blood. We've seen this so very many times, even in Christian circles, as I say. But oftentimes there's just a distortion of truth as well. This brings up the need for that rugged, effective commitment, right, of presence, advocacy, direction. Elders, keep watch, be diligent, keep Jesus as the preeminent one, the shepherd of our souls. I think one of the easiest slips right now that I'm noticing in our church and in our community seems to be the idea of seeing Jesus as just one great idea in the marketplace of ideas. It's a distortion, right? We live in a time of religious pluralism, and it makes it hard to boldly proclaim the gospel. What's the gospel? That Jesus is King, Messiah, and Lord. We're told that whatever religion, whatever works to make good citizens should be good enough for all of us. Just, you know, are they being, are they nice people? Okay, well then leave them alone. We start to think of Jesus as a solution to our problems instead of the king of kings. You know this temptation. And then we try to sell Jesus as a solution to our problems. And then we start to think that, well, you know, we solve our problems with Jesus, but, you know, they, they do other things, and it looks like they're doing okay. They solve their problems different ways. It, it really is a distortion of the truth. But the truth is Jesus does heal and transform, but, but why and how? Well, because he has the authority as king. Jesus is Lord and he's our savior and healer and helper, but it's all because he is king. And so the goal of our salvation isn't just, okay, better, more moral people, though that is an effect of the gospel, right? The effect of Christ's likeness. Our repentance of sin and allegiance to Jesus brings about the goal of our salvation, which is intimacy with the Trinity, the very presence of God among us. That's one distortion. Many more could be discussed. And the fifth thing was for Paul, to, that he wants him to remember his own example. Paul wasn't in it for the branding, the platform, the wealth, the notoriety. He was, he was a humble servant who made sure money never became the sticking point for his ministry. Right? He, he spent time with the weak and was a source of strength to them. Much more could be said. But Acts 20, the close here, 36 through 38, and when he'd said all these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, fell on his neck, 
being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face. And they accompanied him to the ship. It was a long, difficult goodbye. So what do you think happened to the church in Ephesus? Did the savage wolves come in from the outside and destroy them? Did Demetrius and his tradesmen keep the pressure on the local church to stay quiet, stay in your lane, not cause a scene? Did wolves spring up from inside the church? Did they distort the truth and try to draw the way, away the church into error? Paul's letter to Timothy shows a lot of concern. Uh, for the teaching, the whole counsel of God to avoid these rabbit trails of infidelity. There's many warnings against these false teachers. Paul uh, is, is full of, of concern and, and admonition to, to keep straight doctrine and keep it about Jesus. Peter also writes these things to the church by way of warning. So, so we, we would do well to read those in our current season of church life. Absolutely. But where in the Bible would we get specific clues about this church in Ephesus? Would they continue in the favor of God as a church holding forth the witness of Jesus as king? Well, in the Apocalypse of Jesus, or the book we call Revelation, John has a message for the church on the small island within sight of the city. He's on Patmos. And, and he can see Ephesus from there. And John gets a message, a revelation from Jesus himself to the church in Ephesus. And let, let's turn there as we close and, and see what, what they were up against and see what we're up against. How it is we're going to stand our ground in this season of our church. Revelation chapter 2, 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is Jesus writing to the church. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Oh, what a great report. They have not grown weary. They have, they have identified false teaching, false teachers, and have set them out of the church, not for us. But I have this against you, he says, and that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Where's the durability, that rugged commitment? Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Because love does, right? Love makes a move. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The light that you shine, the, the visibility of my presence among you, I will remove that unless you repent. Well, those are sharp words. Sharp words for a church, any church, in any season of life. The one who walks among the lampstands is going to then remove our lampstand, the city on a hill, the light. 
But then there's something good here too. He says, yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Oh, well, that's interesting. <laughs> he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, the Nicolaitans were a sect of Christians following this one named Nicholas, who taught that Christians could engage in immoral behavior with impunity. You can do what you want. God's grace is big. You know, you do you in the church. And, well, there's certainly an idea afloat in the church today that reminds us of the Nicolaitans, doesn't it? Let's call it impurity with impunity. Is that, is that possible among God's holy people? I guess I'm always surprised, and maybe I should be prepared for it by now, when Christians make excuses for their sin and assume, well, God just wants me to be happy. Wait, what do you mean by happy? <laughs> love is love, and you can't stop love. And so, well, Christians? Wait, Christians are saying this? When we know that our own bodies are the temple space of God and have been decontaminated by God's own blood, meant for purity, and then together as Christ's body were to be presented to the Father as holy, blameless, and pure, purchased by God's blood as his dwelling place. Think about that. That's who we are. Purchased by God's own blood as his dwelling place so that together we can hold the presence of God our lampstand shining bright, like a light to our neighbors. Does the light still shine? Do we still see echoes of God's goodness as we remember our time spent with even non-Christians? Do they experience God's presence with us, with you? Because God was surely with us. We can say goodbye. May God surely be with you.